You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Well, time is running out for Hawaii to spend more than a billion dollars in federal pandemic relief funds. We've been hearing a lot about this, and Hawaii's got a deadline to spend these funds. HPR's Ryan Finnerty has been tracking this. So how are we doing, Ryan? Good morning, Catherine. Uh, not that great, actually. This is the money that was approved by Congress back in March in a bill known as the CARES Act. And that was the $2 trillion spending package that did things like expand unemployment and gave people that extra $600 a week. It also gave small business loans to businesses around the country that qualified to help them meet payroll and also provided those stimulus checks that every eligible American was sent in the mail or direct deposited uh, in the beginning of the pandemic. But one of the other provisions in this CARES Act was to give billions of dollars to states and large cities to cover unanticipated expenses related to the pandemic. Um, And that was kind of acknowledging that state and local authorities were going to be the ones having to deal with a lot of these pandemic-related problems. The money could be used for things like purchasing PPE, personal protective equipment for essential workers, providing rent or mortgage assistance, giving additional help to small businesses, really anything under the sun that uh, was related to the pandemic and the recession, it just couldn't be used for pre-budgeted programs or salaries or pension contributions, things like that, that predated the pandemic. Hawaii received more than a billion dollars, $1.25 billion with a B, split between the state government and the city and county of Honolulu because individual cities were given money if they were above a certain size in terms of population, and the city and county of Honolulu qualified By law, that money has to be used by December 31st of this year. That was when Congress passed the CARES Act and the president signed it into law. That was the stipulation. It had to be used for expenses that occurred since the pandemic, and then it has to be uh, used up by the end of the year or it gets returned to the U.S. Treasury. And so far, Hawaii has not done very well at getting that money out. Uh, just over 11% of that $1.25 billion has actually been spent. You know, you talked about the PPE, and I know we just heard this week about more money available for companies to start producing, you know, that uh, protective equipment. But, you know, what's behind this delay of actually spending all this money? The big reason is that the government itself, whether the state or your local county government on whichever island you live, those agencies are not actually going to be the ones spending a lot of the money. Much of it is going to go to nonprofit social service providers in the community in the form of grants. And those types of contracts normally take longer to draw up and execute. There's oftentimes like a bidding process between different entities that do all kinds of things, homeless services, nutritional support, you know, youth programs, elderly programs, all those kinds of things. There are these non-government organizations that provide these services, but often using public money. And because it is public money, there are safeguards in place to make sure it's spent properly and, and being used the right way. And so it takes some time to get that going. Uh, and normally there isn't this deadline uh, like we have in this case. And there's also concerns about potential audit by the federal government and that if we are audited by the Treasury Department and we're found to have spent some of the money improperly, that we would be required to pay it back, whether the state or the county or even the uh, nonprofit organization itself. 
and you know and that's a, a pretty frightening prospect for a lot of groups so they're moving slower you know being more diligent in terms of documenting applications and how the money is distributed and having stricter requirements for individuals or businesses to qualify and that's all just slowing down the process and i talked with jill takuda about that she's with the hawaii data collaborative which has been tracking how cares act funds are being spent locally the big worry there is while yes you have to make sure that you dot all your i's cross all your t's because this is federal monies and if we misuse it in any way for ineligible expenses we'd have to pay it back but the real worry here is the time crunch the longer it takes for us to get these to these entities that are going to help spend the money the way it needs to be the way it was intended to be it becomes more and more difficult to actually be able to spend down during a compressed period of time so the burn rates for these monies become an issue that we've really got to start looking closely at but time is not on our side we need to make sure that they have the funds and are able to go ahead and execute the way it was intended to so um, what else seems to be the issue with spending this money quickly if we had unlimited time this wouldn't be such a problem but you know, there's two issues with time. One is that people need the money fast, and then there's the statutory deadline. Uh, and as I mentioned, nonprofits are going to be spending much of the money, and this is a huge amount of money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, over a billion dollars. They just need to expand capacity to be able to do that. For many of them, they're small organizations, or they're not used to handling that much funding. They might need to hire new staff or some of these programs, like the rental assistance program the state launched this month, that's a brand new program. They had to create new applications and screening and all that kind of thing. So they're kind of having to stand this up. You know, the, the saying is they're building the plane while they're flying it, and that's definitely the case here. Another big complication is that oftentimes these government grants that go to nonprofits actually reimburse them for the services they provide rather than giving them the money up front. And many nonprofit organizations, just like many businesses and individuals, are struggling financially right now. They're seeing a loss of revenue, having to, you know, cut back on services. And so that means they're less able to absorb the financial cost up front of providing these new services. And as Jill Sakuda mentioned, the longer we wait, the harder it will be to get the money out to the people who need it. And what are the chances that we're going to get more federal funding? was in doubt before the news on Friday of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, and now it, it appears very unlikely Congress's attention is now really fixated specifically on a Supreme Court nomination. The House, the House of Representatives, has already passed an aid package. They did that back in May, but the Senate has been unable to reach an agreement over what should be included in that. And I, I talked with one of the U.S. Senators for Hawaii, Maisie Hirono, and she cautioned that local leaders should really not assume more funds are going to be coming at this point. At this point, I don't know that the Senate Republicans are going to be prioritizing that kind of funding to the state and counties. And therefore, I do have a concern about the need to get this money out the door to help the people who need the help. Hirono, who's a Democrat, told me that the Senate is still really divided on what should be included in another funding package if there's going to be one at all. She said that there's around 20 Senate Republicans who feel that the CARES Act was sufficient and that they shouldn't approve any additional funding. And then among her Republican colleagues who are in favor of more assistance, 
Some of them favor things like liability protection for corporations whose workers might get sick with the coronavirus or vouchers for private schools. And Maisie Hirono said those are non-starters for Democrats in the Senate. Those are what I would call poison pills. Those are not the priorities. The priority should be adding to the unemployment insurance benefits, providing more support for small businesses. We should provide a lot of money for the Postal Service so they can get medications, Social Security checks, and uh, vote by mail, deliver it on time. You know, they seem pretty far apart on that issue, and so really we can't count on anything other than we've got about a billion dollars left, uh, and we have to get it out by December 31st. All right. Well, thanks so much, Ryan. Sure thing, Catherine. We've been talking to HBR's Ryan Finnerty about the spending of our CARES money. To read his stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Today, we go into the backyard in search of a subsistence plant that is a flowering tree species in the mulberry family. It arrived in the Hawaiian Islands around 750 A.D. and proved to be both versatile and instrumental to people's survival. The trunk was used to make surfboards, drums, canoe parts, poi boards, and for home construction. The inner bark lent itself as a second-grade tapa cloth. The flowering buds were a medicine for your mouth and throat. And the white sticky sap became glue, caulking, chewing gum, or medicine. And the fruit was a food staple. Do you know the name, the Hawaiian name of this important crop? Extra credit if you can name where the largest collection of varieties exists in the state. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app at locationshawaii.com.
As the recession deepens and the state prepares for budget cuts, some say no government service is safe, and that includes first responders. The State Department of Health has asked emergency medical services on Kauai, Maui, and Hawaii counties to prepare budgets with 10, 15, and 20 percent cuts. In these counties, EMS is provided by American Medical Response. Maui Mayor Mike Victorino said the county would use Federal CARES Act money to backfill any EMS budget cuts. Here's what he had to say at a press conference on Friday. We stand ready to put CARES money for right now and wherever we need to do and whatever we need to keep those services up to par and even try to increase the one we can, we will stand ready. And so money has been set aside to help us in that area. Now, Mayor Victorino uh, didn't disclose how much money has been set aside. Kapena Hill is a paramedic on Maui and is the vice president of the Maui County Paramedics Association. In the past 28 years, he's worked across the state and also flies the air ambulance. He spoke with the Conversations producer, Jason Ubai, about the current state of EMS on Maui and what budget cuts could look like. Currently on Maui, we have 11 ambulance stations. We have one response unit out in Malaya that covers the Malaya area, the west side, the south side, and over in town if everyone else is busy. We have one uh, helicopter, the medevac, that's stationed at the airport in Kahului, and uh, everybody gets transported, with the exception of Hana, to Maori Memorial Hospital. You know, and of course, Lanai and Molokai, they transport to the local hospitals there. Um, as far as what's there's no specific plans for cuts. There's no units that's been targeted specifically. But what the state's looking at or what the governor uh, was looking at was a way to, you know, decrease costs and see what what was out there that could be cut or ways that the budget could be shrunk. And there's really no other way to shrink the budget other than to cut stations, shorten hours, or, or services in some areas completely. And that includes things like the medevac, you know, there's really no community that's safe from uh, from these cuts, aside from maybe the outlying uh, islands of Lanai and Molokai. I don't think we've gotten a new station on Maui for probably a good 15 years or more, uh, if you don't count the response unit in Maui. The last ambulance we got, I think it was Wailea, and that was in, uh, I want to say 2004, maybe. So, you know, we should have been looking to expand what we have and add to what we have, but instead we're faced with the possibility of losing what we have, some of what we have. You know, any cut to any one station, any one community affects everybody. If you take away an ambulance from the south side, then when the one that's left is busy, now you've got to pull in resources from another community, which leaves them you know, with less or sometimes with nothing. So it kind of, it's kind of a domino effect, you know, just losing one unit. And if we lose multiple units in different communities, it's going to affect everybody way more often than, than not. DOH has said that these are just proposals, but why do you believe that these are real cuts that are going to be coming in the, the near future? So it's a, it's a statewide issue. They've asked all the departments to identify places they can make cuts. And so the Department of Health and then the EMS branch that falls under it, that oversees all the ambulance services across the state, was asked. So it's an issue that affects more than just Maui. Other counties were asked to do the same thing. 
you know, I know they've said nothing's set in stone, and, and now it's, they're saying it's just an exercise to see what they could do. But it's not something that comes up that often. And there's been budget issues even before the pandemic hit that was affecting, you know, funding of all of the services throughout the state. With the, the lack of um, tourists and all the income from the spending, you know, the state's going to have a lot harder time, I guess, paying its bills, you know, like everybody else. I'm sure many people would agree emergency medical services are and ambulances are an essential service and shouldn't be cut. Yeah, you know, I, I, I understand there's, there's places you have to, you know, you have to find ways to try and, and cut what you're spending when you're spending, you have less to spend, but it just doesn't seem like in the middle of a pandemic or in the, during a pandemic, because we don't know if we're in the middle, the beginning, or the end of it, right? But cutting any kind of health services would be a good idea. I don't think anybody would consider cutting uh, funding to the fire department anywhere on the West Coast right now with all the fires that are going on. You know, this might not be a fire, but it's affecting everybody. And, you know, when the tourists return, we face a huge increase in the call volume, and we're going to be asked to do it with less some of these cuts are made. How has COVID-19 affected paramedic services on in Maui County? It seems like a large number of our calls come from tourists, from visitors, uh, because in the beginning we did have a lot uh, fewer calls for service. But, you know, that's during a, a lockdown phase where people weren't leaving their home. So we had less vehicle accidents, less injuries at the beach or on the hiking trails. But the number of calls have been coming back up. You know, it's not what it was prior to the pandemic, but it's definitely a lot busier than it was, say, four or five months ago. A lot of people are calling, you know, with symptoms of the the virus, you know, because you can't sit at home and diagnose yourself. So you're getting a lot of calls for things like that, things like just fevers or coughs or weakness. We're having a lot more, we're having to spend a lot more time with patients, cleaning up and disinfecting, you know, every nook and cranny of the ambulance after every single call to reduce the chance of uh, cross-contamination or exposure. So the turnaround times for the units at the hospital have been longer than prior to the pandemic. So, you know, if we're asked to do more with less, um, it's going to be, that's going to impact the times that people are going to be waiting for an ambulance, so they call 911 even longer. Can you explain for our listeners, why why is time essential for medical response calls? So time is important because uh, in some situations, like stroke and heart attacks, every minute that goes by, you have tissue that's dying. You know, and, and with strokes, it's tissue that's dying that can't be replaced. And with a heart attack, it's the same idea. You have damage to the tissue from whatever's going on, and... The sooner you call 911, the sooner help gets to you, and the sooner you get to the hospital, the sooner they can start treatment that will stop the death of more tissue, which leads to a, a better outcome, better recovery, faster recovery, and a longer life afterwards. A lot of people see the ambulance as just a ride to the hospital, but we do a lot more than just drive people to the hospital really fast. There's a lot of treatment we can give you right there in your house or in the ambulance that can... Um, stop and reverse situations that could be otherwise deadly. Allergic reactions, bad asthma attacks, 
choking calls, instances where people's hearts actually stop, and you know you need to get some medication or uh, defibrillation to get their heart beating normally again. Every minute that goes by is a 10% less chance of uh, a good outcome. So you know, 10 minutes that goes by with no CPR is uh, technically a 100% chance of no good outcome. So the time that it takes for an ambulance to get to you and start treatment is pretty important. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I just think that if anybody who listens to this is as uh, concerned as, as the rest of us are, you, know, you can contact the legislators, you can contact anybody in office that you feel can help make sure that something like this doesn't happen now. And of course, we don't want this to even happen in the future. So just uh, support, support for, you know, the first responders, the paramedics, firefighters, and the police, especially during a time like this, is always helpful. Everybody's here for each other. Everybody's here for the community. So as long as we all stick together, we can keep challenges like this from affecting everybody negatively. That was Kapena Hill of the Maui County Paramedics Association sharing his concerns about proposed budget cuts to emergency medical services on Maui and across the state. There's a special appreciation for things that are local. And we take that seriously at HPR, where 30% of the programs you hear are made in-house by our own team. Everything from morning cafe to the conversation, bridging the gap to evening jazz. Whether you're a news junkie or a music lover, HPR's local programming keeps you rooted in our shared island community. Learn more about our shows at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our reality check this morning looks at what's on tap for this week's rail meeting, and it's a biggie. Honolulu Civil Beats Marcel Henri covers transportation issues and joins us live this morning. Hi, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. How's it going? So the meeting is Thursday, and they want to replace the CEO? Yikes. It's it's looking like it's heading that way. They have that on the meeting's agenda is to uh, basically allow uh, the, the current executive director of Hart, who is Andrew Robbins, to let his uh, contract expire at the end of the year. It's a three-year contract. He was hired in 2017. And, you know, it's just been um, yet another eventful uh, few weeks or months for the rail project. And so basically with the timing of that, uh, we are now also seeing the board um, moving in this direction to, you know, unlike... um, some of these other contentious severances, right, where they would negotiate terms or something. They're just looking at the timing of this, and they may just just let his uh, contract expire and look for a replacement for next year. So the timing of this, I mean, we're moving into the most critical stage uh, for rail, uh, the private-public partnership, P3, as we go into this final leg on the rail route, town, yeah, uh, it's it's not 
it's not been great. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to say what is, is happening with P3 other than, you know, this, this procurement process, which is something that Robbins has really uh, spearheaded since he came on board, seems to have stumbled. Um, they have faced at least a year's worth of delays in the procurement process. The last couple of months or so attributed, of course, to the COVID-19 pandemic. But really, these delays were piling up well before the pandemic started. And they really missed their last target to award, or I should say their latest target, to award the P3 contract, which was the end of August. And that is almost a month ago. And there's just been no update on Hart's side. But what we do know is that at least one of the final two proposals uh, from from these private joint ventures was putting in what the, what their CEO described to investors as a more than two billion dollar bid for that last remaining work for rail. And you know they're not specifying exactly what that covers, but we do know that Hart had estimated that work to cost 1.4 billion dollars. So that is quite a, a delta, quite a gap, right? And th- that's really what we know. Uh, you know, typically in these situations, um, the parties will come together and they'll look for what's called a best and final offer. And it does seem like maybe Hart is trying to scrap something together there. Uh, we just don't know. But that is what is happening on this P3 front. This is a you know a years long struggle that Hart and the city have faced to to finally just get this this contract uh, for the remaining four miles into town, uh, you know, out and, and awarded. And they just haven't been able to do it. We can't really say what the board's thinking is right now, or at least it's human resources committee's thinking is. It's all behind closed doors. It's personnel issues. You know, but we can at least definitively say that this whole struggle is happening at the same time that, you know, coincidentally, we're seeing these agenda items pop up to replace Robbins. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty complicated issue in the most difficult uh, segment of the route. And I know critics are, you know, from the get-go, we're saying we should have started in town and then moved out, and now we're kind of stuck because we've got to get this this big piece of, of the puzzle kind of in place. Um, it, it was interesting for me to read uh, about the people that are coming to uh, Robin's um, defense and coming out in uh, support of keeping him. Right. You had um, in testimony before the Human Resources Committee last week when the storm clouds really started to be gathering and people really started to sense something was up. You did have kind of a um, it looked like a concertive uh, effort to defend him, and among those were uh, Councilwoman Ann Kobayashi, who is, as you know, a a longtime opponent of the project, but seems to have at least appreciated what Robbins has brought to it um, over his predecessors. You had uh, Senator Kurt Favela from, from, you know, the EVA area uh, speaking out, and of course, uh, the former Honolulu Mayor Mufi Hanneman, a uh, longtime supporter of the project and known to be a you know a good friend and and um, uh, just somebody who's who's really connected well with with Robbins, as well as union leaders, construction leaders, um, people with you know leading the, some of the companies that that have worked on the rail project. Uh, they they basically all signed a, a letter advocating for him and saying that you know he's 
he's held the budget firm at least to this point. You know, like it hasn't really gone up at least until recently. And that, you know, he's worked well with the FTA and Mm -hmm. cautioning against more upheaval, especially in terms of working with rail federal partners. Yeah, well, we'll have to see what happens then on Thursday. But thanks so much, Marcel. Sure thing. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. Uh, Read the story about uh, Hart's CEO online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, dedicated to the idea that everyone should have a decent place to live and committed to bringing people together to build homes. HonoluluHabitat.org Much ado about vaccines. Once one does come out in this country, who will line up to get the shot? That's the subject of the long view with our contributing analyst, Neil Milner. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. So, gosh, everybody's talking about this. Yeah, everybody's talking about it, and it's pretty fluid when you ask people now whether they'd be willing to to get the uh, vaccine when it becomes available. It appears now, and this showed up in a poll this morning that the Star Advertiser reported on on about Hawaii, and in some other ones that roughly 30 on the low side to 50%, which seems now to be the number that shows up more and more. People say they're willing to get it, and then there's a chunk of people who are undecided, and then a relatively small percentage that says never. Um, remember, they're dealing with a hypothetical here, uh, uh, anything else. This is, it's not just the number that's important, it's the number that public health uh, specialists think is important to really drive the disease to the margins, I guess would be the layperson's way of saying it, where they think you need about 70% of uh, people getting the vaccine. And we're not there yet, but as I say, it's pretty fluid. And some of the early studies of the polio vaccine, it was initially about 60% of the people uh, said they would get it and, and others wouldn't. This is a very different time, though. It's different from the polio vaccine because you have social media, because anti-vaxxers are more organized, because science has become politicized. Well, everything has become politicized. Republicans and Democrats differ in these polls in regard to uh, their willingness to have a, uh, to have the vaccine. Republicans are less likely to. Um, and this comes up all the time, but I haven't seen any evidence that really shows it other than saying it, other than saying it's possible because of uh, Trump's pushing the vaccine so hard and his number is what I think is basically a fantasy that you're going to have it at the end of October. People worry about it not being um, safe, but it's not, it, it's clearly not good evidence for that. should also point out that African Americans who have suffered disproportionately by the pandemic are slightly less willing, well, considerably less willing to get the, the uh, vaccine probably because of a historical distrust of medicine, which has not treated them very well over the years. You know, I think of that uh, cereal commercial, you know, let Mikey try it, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Although um, 
And here's, on, on some studies, uh, older people are willing to be Mikey's, uh, and that kind of follows, saying, you know, we're the most vulnerable. By we, that would include me. On a recent study, the younger folks were more willing to, uh, uh, to do it. So that, even, even that is up in the air. Um, the real question is, how do you convince people uh, who are against it or who are reluctant to... Um, to move in the direction of taking the vaccine. And what's interesting to me is the kinds of mass persuasion sorts of things you have to do and the kinds of one-on-one persuasion techniques you have to use are pretty much the same as you have to use for anything else, like getting people to vote, getting people to give to charity. And that's where you're going to see a lot of of interesting and very important uh, sort of things. Uh, happening. And there are two things that I think people have to realize about convincing folks who are reluctant not to be reluctant. Two things that definitely don't work. Um, one of which is to simply present statistics. You know, we've had, uh, we've had $200,000 200, uh, deaths by COVID. If you just present numbers, people don't react very well. The reason is that our brains are much more wired toward stories, that telling stories about people who have suffered from the disease or telling stories about neighbors that have suffered turns out to be just generally a more, a more important thing. I mean, the, the interesting research on that is, is that brain is really wired to accept that kind of information better than, than anything else. So those are the things that you... The storytelling is a very important way to drive uh, persuasion, both at a mass level. If you watch the ads that will start appearing when we get closer, there will be a lot about stories, as our political ads. Uh, but it's also a way to try to convince your friend, your neighbor, um, that he or she should think about the vaccine. Well, I think we've just seen recently, right, the state health department you know, launching campaigns uh, highlighting stories from people who have survived COVID but yes. have had a very difficult time recovering. Yes. And to drive that point home, like, you know, this is not something to mess around with. It could affect you even though you don't die. Um, it, but it, that's a scare story, and mm-hmm. I understand why it's a, it's a, quote, logical thing to do, but it's not necessarily the best way to change minds. People don't respond to, to fear alone very much. What may be more important, at least if you look at what gets suggested, that piece I sent you, that Huffington Post, good piece about what you do to try to convince others, Mm -hmm. Um, you try to get them to see that people they respect in their social network um, are, you know, understand the need for the vaccine. Or you try to find a person who is a kind of ethical leader in a group and you, in fact, you address a lot of your pro-vaccine or reassurances about vaccines to the social network and not so much to the person because that's how we tend to respond to things. So if you look at those Department of Health ads, the way they're more likely to become successful is if you reinforce them by smaller groups discussing them you know, with, uh, with the social network. Again, it's very much like we do all kinds of other stuff uh, in regard to, uh, you know, in regard to politics and so on. People are more likely to vote if they know that their neighbors have voted. 
uh, never mind which way they voted, just as they know their neighbors have voted. So it's, you know, a, a, a big country, very complex, trying to get mass messages out. But at one level, this kind of small-scale stuff is very important. And the one other thing that's very hard to do, to get people to do, because we're so polarized about so many things, is to get them to listen to the people who are reluctant to get a vaccine, to listen to their viewpoint, and to try to reassure them on the basis of what their concerns are. For example, uh, they're, you know, they're worried about the medicine. They, they may not think they can get access to it, all that sort of stuff, and not to oversell. But in this day and age when social networks and political networks overlap so much, you know, we don't have as many small group influentials around us or small groups around us that differ very much from us. And so if you try to move outside that space to talk to others, it's not very easy to do. Well, uh, you know, I, I know there's always a concern about overselling something, too, right? It's the, the yeah. whole trusting. Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, but... Um, it's just, as I say, so much of this is still a, a, a work in progress because it's still hypothetical in regard to when the vaccine will be here, uh, when we'll have one, uh, what's it going to be like, what kind of reassurances come along there. Um, but this gets so much wrapped up in, as I said before, into polarization, where political polarization and social polarization kind of overlap very much, so you tend to be speaking to people who are very much like you, much more than, than say, that you had to do in the past. But I think, you know, as I said before, I think 50% isn't so bad for now, but it's, it's a pretty high bar that we have to get to in order to make this thing, uh, you know, in order to, I use the word marginalize, you're not going to get rid of the disease, in order to have enough of the population vaccinated so that community spread becomes much, much harder. You had mentioned uh, availability, too, and I know they're they're talking about what having the military and the first responders, you know, uh, yeah, access. First, yeah, uh, um, and now you're starting to see stuff. Um, and again, you know, here's the problem. You can't trust the CDC information right now because it's so erratic and jumped around, which is a real tragedy about what's happening there. But if you look at what people are starting to say now, uh, it's, and in fact, N.B. Fawcett in her piece this morning in Civil uh, Beat mentions this number. By the time the whole vaccine system gets ramped up and out and everybody who wants to get it can get it, that could be well, well into 2021. Okay. So there's two questions. When will the vaccine be available? Who gets it first? Uh, and then how long is it going to take for everybody else to get it? And you, and you need a mass distribution system for sure. And the other thing you need, and real fast, is that some of these vaccines appear to require some special kind of storage systems, like really, really cold uh, refrigerators. And so you've got to make sure all of that's in place. Right. That's, why, uh, that's why the orders have already gone out to public health, to state health departments and so on, to get your system in place, because right. there's all kinds of licensing and so on. And yeah, it's not going to be easy. Not gonna no, be easy. no, it's not going to be easy. All right, well, thanks so much, Neil. Take care. We have been talking with Neil Milner, retired political science professor at the University of Hawaii. He joins us regularly with his thoughts on the long view.
You know, we've been covering the developments around the Huhunua Energy Project on Hawaii Island. We heard from a listener who lives near the plant. Sarah Chang, I live above the place, and I've, for 20-something years, I've seen the smoke off their smokestack blow up my side, and uh, they talk about jobs. The jobs is a handful. The energy is all in solar in Kona. They're asking 30 30 cents more than what they'd be asking with a solar um, business in Kona. So then to have um, the power structure set up and put up before it was even put through is an insult to the community. Have Telco put up something that's not even going to be used, it's kind of um, interesting. All right. Aloha. And we also received feedback after our call-in show last week on data during the pandemic. Good morning. My name is Mr. Bray. I'm calling from Kona. These people are talking about transparency to begin with until they get those fools, the Governor Ige, to admit that the Department of Health left us in the dumpster. There is no transparency. Just my opinion. Thank you. Okay, then. Thank you for your calls. We would like to hear from you. Call our Talkback line at 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Today we were looking for the Hawaiian name of a versatile tree that produces an abundance of light green fruit weighing up to 10 pounds each that can be cooked and eaten at all stages of growth. But most commonly, the mature globes are harvested to be boiled, steamed, fried, or baked. Its potato-like flavor has been likened to fresh baked bread, ergo the moniker breadfruit. It's a good source of dietary fiber and potassium as well as vitamin C, calcium, and folate. Ulu, as it's named in Hawaiian, was one of the few substance plants the Polynesians brought with them, and it was a very versatile plant. Uh, the trunk, barks, buds, leaves, and sap were used in daily life. Diane uh, Ragoni of the Breadfruit Institute at the National Tropical Botanical Garden has collected more than 120 breadfruit varieties and helped to establish the world's largest collection of ulu varieties at Kahanu Garden, a 10-acre plot in Hanamaui. Uh, congratulations to our winner, Mike from Kaimuki. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. We've all heard that Washington is broken. Washington isn't broken. Washington is doing exactly what it's designed to do. It is, in fact, a massively successful industry. And this industry has made it very, very hard to play if you're not playing their game. The DC duopoly and how to fix it, maybe. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Starting this evening at 7, following Counterspin. 
This Saturday marks National Public Lands Day. In an effort to connect more people with public spaces, one Oahu neighborhood is throwing the spotlight on its lay of parks. The upcoming virtual tour of Kaimuki's seven parks, some of the mini parks, also includes a hidden nature trail. The mile-long loop trail was a first for University of Hawaii Emeritus geology professor John Sinton, who has been hiking the islands for decades. He explains how the area was created by early lava flows. What happened was there was a series of eruptions down through here, which included uh, Pu'o, Kaimuki, and Ma'umai. They were a few hundred thousand years old, but then the ocean came in, but because of those previous eruptions, that was high ground. So the ocean never covered Pu'o Kaimuki. It came up this side, and it came up the other side. It flowed way up into Manoa. It flowed all, all the way up against the old cliffs where the freeway is. So this was a peninsula. This was the old Kaimuki Peninsula that went from Mount Mai to Pu'o Kaimuki to Diamond Head and, and Black Point, too. Uh, that was a peninsula that stuck out into the ocean. That was 125,000 years ago when those reefs were forming out there. Geologist John Sinton is one of several people featured on the virtual tour. The event this weekend will also feature musician Jake Shimabukuro and master storyteller Jeff Gear, both who have deep roots in the community. It's made possible through the efforts of a number of groups, including the National Park Service and Trees for Honolulu's Future and the city's Parks Department. Here's Sharon Snyder of Envision Kaimuki. Each park has a special personality. Some are very small and, and hidden, and um, some of them have very, very interesting history. So we would like to let our community know about that. So give us an example. And there's a tiny park behind the fire station, and it's a hill. This is a, a high point. It's like a little hill volcano, and it was used as a lookout about the time of Kamehameha I, and it also has a telescope and, a, and it's what's called Telegraph Hill. So we've had a nice history there, and now it needs a little bit of love. You have a beautiful vista of Cocoa Head, and sometimes you can see Molokai and Lunai when the conditions are right. And you can also see a lot of the geological history. You can see where the old volcanoes were and how they came up. And we actually had a lecture on that, and that was very interesting and fun. So your group is just trying to engage the community in, in so many different ways, whether it's just appreciating the history and the, the nature uh, that we've got in our area, um, and also connecting it with the business community. Oh, definitely. You know, there's, we, we're so lucky to have a park right on Wailai Avenue, you know, the main Kaneki Park, which is very busy and very well used. But sometimes we forget all these other little parks around. And for most people who know the neighborhood, there's a charming Christmas parade at the top of the hill. And usually during the holidays at that park behind the fire station, there's usually that lit Christmas tree. Yes, and it was quite neglected for a while. And last year, we were able to have the help of HECO and the Parks Department to get it fixed. And they worked really hard to have it up and running or lit by the time of the Christmas parade, which was a traditional time they turned it on. 
So that tree is really yeah. a, kind of a nice symbol of the top of the hill there. Yes, you can, you can see that for a long ways. And so tell us then what's planned for this day, for this special day, this public parks, public lands day. We're going to visit all of the parks, and we're going to give a little bit of either history or explanation of all our, our valuable open lands that we can escape to, when, especially during times of COVID, now that we can go hiking and be outdoors. So I guess as, as a lot of families are spending lots of time at home and maybe are, are getting tired of just playing in the streets or in the yards, it's really a chance for them to explore their neighborhood. Yes, and take, take advantage now that we can go out a little bit and discover our little jewels. Now, is this just limited to people who live in Kaimuki or wide open? <laughs> I think it's wide open, and I believe um, might we might even have national participants, but it's, it's mostly directed to our community. Talk about some of the, the things you might be covering in this virtual tour. We have a, a little Maumai Park, and there's a trail that nobody knows about that was, that was helped um, developed by one of our community members a long time ago, Leonard Tam, and he planted some, some native plants and gathered the community to, to take care of it. We'd like to resurrect that appreciation and maybe the, the care for it. Oh, yeah. Talk about the tree project because, you know, I know that uh, Kaimuki has been one of those communities here that has been focused on mapping city trees. Yes, we were very fortunate to partner with Trees for Honolulu's Future and Smart Trees Pacific, the Outdoor Circle, and Envision Kaimuki. And we got them to learn how to inventory the trees. And we are trying to plant trees here because our neighborhood, in particular, is a little bit below the average in urban canopy cover. And we'd like to plant more trees and try to help with the mayor's initiative to increase the urban canopy. You're plotting out the types of trees that we've got on our streets and also looking for spaces where we can plant new ones. Yes, and, and people to hopefully volunteer to take care of it for a little while until it gets established. And also to encourage a little bit more plantings personally on their property. You know, this we're working with the parks and the Division of Urban Forestry to plant these trees, but there's um, a lot um, residents can do as individuals. Envision Kaimuki has also been uh, helping to kind of spruce up just the, the main business corridor, right? I mean, y you've kind of got a little curb appeal project going. Yeah, the city has planted some trees and built in the tree wells, so it's, it's going to be quite beautiful. And we're also looking for, you know, other little places where we could help. And that was Sharon Snyder of Envision Kaimuki talking about a virtual event 9 a.m. Saturday that will feature the hidden secrets of seven of its neighborhood parks. It's part of a celebration of National Public Lands Day. Participants will be eligible for gift certificates to help local Kaimuki businesses weather this economic downturn. For links and details about the virtual tour, which will also be on Facebook Live, head to our website.
Well, that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we're preempted by a special program exploring race. We'll be airing a three-part NPR special, Summer of Racial Reckoning. Part one explores the events and people whose deaths have sparked nationwide protests and calls for change. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back on Monday with the conversation. <laughs>